This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Kate Andrews. NHS consultants have rejected another pay increase offer by the government. Kate, can you give us the details? So the BMA put to the NHS consultants this deal that it had temporarily struck with the government, which would have seen an additional almost 5% given to consultants for their pay on top of the 6% that was already offered last spring in the broader pay package deal for NHS workers. Consultants have very narrowly shot this down. It was by 51% of the vote that they rejected it. It is notable that they've said they're not immediately going back on strike. They want to try to negotiate more with the government. I think there are two ways of looking at this. The first is that timing matters here. Uh, One of the difficulties for the government about this decision is that it has come just after Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt uh, made a big deal in the Sunday papers last weekend that tax cuts were coming. And there's been a lot of speculation about how much room Jeremy Hunt will have to cut tax, and it's thought that he could have upwards of £20 billion of fiscal headroom, basically that wiggle room that his fiscal rules allow him to implement more tax cuts. It is difficult on the one hand to say, we have these many billions that we're going to prioritize tax cuts for. And then on the other hand, say there's no money left for any kind of public service pay increase. Now, of course, I'm not sure that's the argument the government should be making anyway. I mean, there should be broader arguments here about, you know, so long as healthcare is completely in the public sphere and people reject the idea of more independent top up, then these are the kinds of salaries that we're going to get compared to not the USA compared to every other country like Australia and New Zealand and Germany and Switzerland and France and all the rest but that is tricky for the government on the other hand the fact that the consultants aren't going back on strike immediately suggests to me that they understand that their strike in particular is not the most widely received it Mm -hmm. is not the most popular and if you ask the public who they support when it comes to NHS strikes consultants are towards the bottom of the list and this is somewhat unsurprising given the fact that the government fairly recently had to change a pensions rule basically to keep doctors in the workforce longer because they were coming up against the limit because when you reach a certain level in the NHS and when you can do work outside of the NHS you know these numbers they add up so I think that I think there seems to be some understanding from the consultants that the way to handle this is ideally for now behind the scenes rather than to be back on the picket lines but it's going to be a long year. We'll see what happens. It's probably worth adding that the uh, basic salary of an NHS consultant varies from £94,000 to £126,000 a year. So we're talking people in here in the top sort of 0.5% of their earnings. Uh, and that's, by the way, that is, um, you know, on top of all the other various benefits which you get, the NHS has got one of the most generous pension schemes in the whole of Europe. I think 20% of your salary you get put towards a pension on top of that. So that's why, as Kate says, um, people aren't going to be shedding tears from the consultants. By the way, the NHS doctors are also, even the junior doctors, are paid pretty well compared to their peers. When you look at their salary trajectory, they're going to get to pretty decent salary, the one I just described, in a reasonable amount of time. And then you, when you think about, um, for example, cleaners and the minimum wage, you know, your average cleaner is basically going to, by the time of the next election, is going to be paying 50% more income tax 
than she would have been doing when the Tories were last voted in in 2019. And I, you know, I came across that fact recently, looking at all the, the effect of the freezing of the tax thresholds, and it really does hit hardest on those earning between basically between ten thousand and seventeen thousand pounds a year. So we're talking people who aren't working part time, probably minimum wage jobs. And it seems strange that all of the attention is going on those who are really at the top of our earnings stream. And I haven't heard anybody really mention the effect of the various Tory tax changes on those right at the bottom. And to me, this seems a rather hideous asymmetry of debates. And uh, I guess, of course, if you're in the public sector, you have the power to hold the country to ransom, to deprive us of public services. So you can push your case to the top, no matter how much you're earning. But I do think, and we're going to be doing this in the spectator, looking at those at the bottom of the salary scale, how badly they're going to be hit by the stealth tax rises, and how little they've been helped by the recent round of pay disputes. And Fraser, you did say before this podcast started that you had a Nelson plan to end the strikes. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I was perhaps exaggerating a bit, but... No. <laughs> well, right now, for example, the junior doctors are obliged, they're forced, to have 20% of a salary going towards pension. Now, most people, when they start off, they would rather that was 10% or 5%, because when you're starting off, you need the money for, for various things. You need, you've got student loans to pay off, you've got your rent. And of course, you see the value of a pension, but 20%, really? So I don't see why... NHS workers should not be given the same flexibility that other workers are and allowed to decide for themselves how much of their pay goes towards salary and how much they take in the here and now. Most workers have got that. Sure, employers are obliged to do a contributory scheme, but you or I, Max, are not obliged to put a penny into a pension scheme if we don't want to. And most people do. Um, it's a pretty generous um, scheme the NHS is offering. But 20% is just excessive. So what I would do is I would say to them, look, we're going to treat, give you the same responsibilities. We're going to treat you like grown-ups and we say that everybody else is. We're not going to force you to put a fifth of your salary into your pension pot. You're going to decide how much you want to put in and you can take the rest as salary. So I would, if I was handling these negotiations, make that part of the offer. I think it would go down pretty well. Okay, I don't think most people are realising that doctors can't reduce the amount that they're putting into their pension pots. I would have thought that that would be natural. Well, again, you can look at this from two different perspectives. One is that they are asked to put a disproportionate amount of their income into their pension, and that makes their day-to-day life a lot harder. I completely agree with Fraser on that point. Of course, they also get the benefit of such a massive state pension, the kind that almost no other worker would ever get to see. So, you know, these kinds of these kinds of payments in the earlier part of careers pay off in a big way later on. But I, I completely agree with Fraser. It's the flexibility here that's key. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of about where, the, it's not about the amount of cash, but it's about where it's going at any given time. And perhaps some of the current problems could be better solved if doctors have more flexibility over this. And Kate, Britain and Canada's trade deal has been put on pause. While a main trade agreement between the two countries remains in place, preferential agreements now aren't on the table. Do you think this is a negotiating tactic or is this really the end of trade talks? I don't think it's the end of trade talks. It's said that they've been put on hold. I mean, we should remember that these things sometimes take years, so it it could certainly feel, certainly to this government anyway, and perhaps the next, like, this is 
you know, a non-starter for now, but I wouldn't rule it out completely. As you say, Max, Britain's trading arrangements with Canada um, stayed in place after it left the EU, but um, they were under review leading up to December in talks for something more comprehensive, and, and that is seemingly what's fallen apart here. And as very often happens, it comes down to food markets, and you have farmers on both sides of the Atlantic frustrated. In Canada, they're frustrated about cheese imports. Um, in the UK, there's resistance to letting certain kinds of meat into the market. And I think we're just going to see this time and time again as Britain tries to get trade deals all over the world is that the food markets issue is going to be the sticking point. It's going to be that way with America. It's going to be that way with lots of countries. If you really want to embrace that full free market, robust kind of trade deal, there's going to have to be compromise on both sides. And at the moment, there seems to be essentially zero appetite from UK politicians to to make compromises and, and, and and when I say compromises, I do not mean in terms of genuine food standards or safety. If you, you know the chlorinated chicken debate, if you start getting into that, you see that a, lo- a lot of the sickness rates in America are actually lower than they are in the UK. But the point is, there isn't even scope to have this argument right now. And, and that is ultimately what's going to keep these trade deals on hold. Not the fact that you can't secure them, but that there is not the political will or appetite at the moment to do so. And Fraser, finally, Andrew Neil, the Spectator chairman, broke his silence on the magazine sale last night on Newsnight, he said that the government should block the takeover attempt by Redbird IMI, a UAE-backed fund in the US. Here's what he had to say. Let me just ask you this. If this was allowed to go ahead and the UAE is allowed to own the Telegraph and the Spectator, how long before some Chinese billionaire acting on behalf of President Xi tries to buy the Times uh, when Rupert Murdoch goes to the great newsroom in the sky. Okay. President will come on the block. Final or the Daily question. Mirror, President Putin's, his people might try to buy. You want the British media to be owned by foreign dictators? Fraser, why do you think Andrew has arrived at this position? Well, for all of the reasons that he said, I think both Andrew and I have um, been trying, thinking long and hard about this. I mean, you don't want to rush to judgment on this. The, um, the Emirati deal was sprung on us as a surprise in the middle of last December. Just on the same week that we were supposed to finalise the long auction. So it takes a while to see the life of land. Um, both Andrew and I have met Jeff Zucker, who I would be reporting to as editor. And, and by the way, he strikes me as being a, a professional. I don't. To me, the character of Zucker is not particularly a cause for concern here. The biggest concern is the fact that a foreign government would be owning The Spectator. And you can try with the best will in the world to see it differently. Oh, it's not really owned by the foreign government. They're doing it through a vehicle. They don't have any operational control. But none of these things really pass the smell test. Why would you be spending so much money for the Daily Telegraph and the Spectator if you didn't intend to exert any influence? And also the the idea of editorial boards. Um, I remember we did an editorial on the Spectator saying that we would need cast-iron assurances of editorial independence. And... At the time, we didn't quite know what they would look like. How is it possible to give a publication cast iron assurances of independence from its owner? That isn't the way normal organisations work, since when do the management of independence from the owners? Also, editors, I'm afraid to say, deserve to be sacked sometimes as well. There's no reason why the editor's job should be protected 
by a board when people below the editor certainly aren't protected. So I do, and also these editorial boards just don't work. Ask Rupert Murdoch, he just, I think, appointed a bunch of um, acting editors when he was, wasn't given approval by his board. And there is um, an editor of Polish TV right now who's supposed to be protected by a board who was sacked a few weeks ago. You know, they never work and they can give a lot of bureaucratic interference. So I think Andrew, who is a... Now, Andrew, he, he emphasised some other concerns there. He doesn't think that Jeff Zucker, for example, would have the expertise or knowledge of newspapers or of Britain to be able to make a success of this. And he fundamentally, though, thinks, and I completely agree with him here, that governments should not be owning newspapers. You have to... The Spectator has a 200-year tradition of campaigning for press freedom. And by press freedom, we mean freedom from government. That's what freedom means. So how can you reconcile press freedom with ownership by A, a government, B, a foreign government, C, an autocratic foreign government? Now, my own concern, I write about the Daily Telegraph, is um, the column is a slightly different to one that Andrew mentioned. I'm not, he'll agree with me here, but what I've... Um, I say the rider problem that the government has is how much of our assets do we really want to sell to these foreign governments? It's only been in the last 10 years that the Arab states have been going on a shopping spree, buying, in Britain's case, the Emirates have bought 10% of Heathrow Airport, 15% of Vodafone, 49% of um, wind farms like Dogger Bank. And all the time, these are pretty important pieces of critical national infrastructure. And you can see that they're sort of testing how much can we really buy? How much of one country would you sell to another country's government? Now, until now, most of the UK government officials, their job is to be trying to get inward investment into Britain, thinking, OK, we need this Emirati money of 10 billion quid, great, let's get them in. It seems to be a bit of an afterthought, thinking, hang on a minute, why is it only these assets that they're really interested in buying? Because these aren't, if you wanted your greater return on the, of your investment, would you really be spending um, so much money on the Telegraph and the Spectator? I think you're paying that premium because it's sensitive. Now, the very reason which a foreign government would want to buy a sensitive asset is the very reason that a national government should be wary of selling them. I don't think that any government should ever be allowed to buy any newspaper. That violates the principle of press freedom, and I think it should be upheld. I doubt, but there aren't laws against that right now, so there's no legal basis for the government to stop this deal on that basis. There is national security um, question, which I think is glaringly obvious. If the Emirates are our allies, but they're also Putin's allies. There was this um, disgusting spectacle last month where they welcomed Putin as a conquering hero in Abu Dhabi. And um, they had a 21-gun salute there, gave a sort of a military escort. They took him to the presidential palace. And the Emirati fa- royal family um, praised him as a dear friend, a dear friend. Now, I paused at that because the Emirati royal family would be effectively my bosses. They would be the people that I, as editor of a spectator, would be working for. Can you really have a magazine like ours owned by the dear friends of Vladimir Putin? Now, that's been going over in my head ever since I saw that press conference. I haven't said anything about it publicly until now because, again, this is, these are really important questions. You don't want to rush to judgment here. But the more you think about it, the more it's impossible to reconcile, I think, the spectator's tradition of press freedom with government ownership. And it's also difficult to reconcile, I would argue, the government's duty of preserving national security with selling um, aspects of your democracy, fundamental parts of your democracy, which the free press is, to foreign dictatorships who are allies with Vladimir Putin. 
So for all of these reasons, I think that Lucy Fraser, the Culture Secretary, has got lots of reason to look askance at this takeover deal. We were supposed to hear about it today. This is Friday, but we haven't. Um, so I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. But this is a very important decision, and one, I think, whose importance runs beyond the circulation of a spectator of a telegraph. This is about who we are as a country, what protections we put in our free press, and how we are able to um, defend the integrity of our own system, our own traditions, in a world where autocracies have got lots of money and are willing to spend it. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Kate. And thank you very much for listening.